Today's episode is brought to you by Mazars. Sound Cartel. At the best of times, divorce is extremely stressful and complex, but exponentially so when there's a business involved. And with such a small number of cases that actually get to court, avoiding litigation is key. And there is a practice to help you do just that. From Sound Cartel, I'm Nicole Goodman, and this is Business Essentials Daily. When the founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, and his wife Mackenzie divorced, she received an astonishing $38 billion settlement. Hard to beat that. But Mackenzie has been a long-term partner in the Amazon business, and as Brisbane-based family law specialist Jennifer Hetherington has subsequently written, this high-profile divorce shines a light on the complexities of the business world when couples who co-own a business may want to divorce without destroying the business in the process. In the law courts of Australia, that's not so easy, she says. But there is an alternative way, called collaborative practice. And Jennifer Hetherington tells Heather Dawson more about that in a moment. First, what are the biggest issues facing business couples in the event of a divorce? I think one of the biggest issues is working out a valuation of the business. The way that a business is valued if it were to be sold is very different from the way it's valued for family law purposes. So an example of that is if a couple has a business and it earns a certain amount of income per year, for family law purposes, it's often valued based on a multiple of what's referred to as the future maintainable earnings of the business. So the value of the business is based on what it's earned in the past, expected to earn into the future. Now that can be very different from how it would be valued if it was put on the market for sale to an arm's length purchaser and can also be very different from the net assets that the business owns. So it's quite challenging for business owners to be faced with the realisation that the value that will be put on their business by a value for family court proceedings is potentially very different from what they could get if they sold it or the value that the bank would place on it. Where that becomes a problem is if the value of the business comes in at an amount that makes it very difficult for the party who wants to retain the business to be able to keep it. So you might have a situation where the business is the primary asset in the property pool and we need to make sure that the spouse who isn't retaining the business receives their appropriate share of that property pool. So that can be quite challenging because the value that's attributed to the business for family law purposes might not be the same as a bank valuation used for financing purposes. So you might find a situation where a business owner wants to retain their business and keep operating it, but the value that's attributed to it for family law purposes by a court means that it's very difficult for them to buy the other person out of their share. So that's a real challenge when we're dealing with a property pool that involves a business. And um, it really calls for some creative solutions, which are just really not available to the family court. Um, The other thing that can happen is if there's money in a business that could be used to pay out the other spouse, that can cripple a business. Businesses need cash flow, as we know, Heather, and taking out a chunk of money can mean that a business isn't able to 
earn those profit that it's previously earned, the bank might not be prepared to lend. And even if it is prepared to lend enough to pay out the other party, that might place the business in a situation of having crippling debt levels and really increasing the risk level for that business to be a viable concern. So that's another real issue. And a third one would be if a couple are both working in the business and they separate, is it going to be sustainable to keep the couple working in the business or is one person going to potentially end up unemployed? Mm. Well, in your experience, are divorcing couples good at trying to sort out their business and financial affairs amicably without any outside assistance? Heather, there's a, a very large proportion of the population who are able to sit down around the kitchen table and work things out. They're not the ones we lawyers see. If we see them, it's because they've reached an agreement and they've come to us so that we can document that so that it's legally binding. And often accountants are very helpful with business people to work out an agreement. But one of the things that, in my experience, goes when a marriage breaks down is communication and trust. And those two things are really needed to be able to come to an agreement without outside help. If you've lost the ability to communicate or trust has been broken down, then it's very difficult to sit around a table together, remove all emotion and have a business-like discussion. So it can be quite challenging and particularly so if one person has been more involved in the business than the other or doesn't have a clear understanding of the finances, it can be very hard for them to trust what the other person is saying about the business or about the finances. Well, you're a strong supporter of collaborative practice. What is that and uh, why are you such an advocate, Jennifer? Collaborative practice is a process where couples finalise the legal aspects of their separation without court. So they negotiate a family law property settlement or a parenting agreement or both in a way that's respectful to each other and puts the interests of their children first. Now, they might be children under 18, but they can also be children over 18. And I think they're the, the forgotten children of divorce where they're adult children and what I find is they can easily be dragged into a divorce and relationships with parents can suffer. So taking into account that parties quite often have children, young or grown, and making sure that there's a focus on meeting the needs of the family as a whole and recognising that you don't stop being a parent when your kids turn 18. And often people have grandchildren and we've all heard the uh, horror stories of couples trying to work out a wedding guest list and being faced with a situation of having to choose between inviting mum or dad because we can't even have them both in the same room at the reception. In particular, collaborative practice is really a commitment from everyone, including the lawyers, to not going to court. We actually sign a contract or a participation agreement to say no one will go to court. Our job is to help these parties reach an agreement and be problem solvers rather than warriors. So it's really about being solution focused and using a cost effective approach to reaching a family law agreement in a consensual way, minimising conflict. So we're talking about managing disagreements before they become disputes. So Heather, you asked why I'm an advocate for it. I've been doing family law for over 20 years now and um, I've seen the damage that's caused by litigation. It's stressful, it's expensive, the delays are enormous right now. Across Australia, people are sort of talking two to three years to get a trial, there can be delays in getting judgment. Then there's a 
appeals. And all of these cases are decided by the courts based on a really small proportion of cases that make it to an appeal to the full court. Maybe 3% of cases filed every year end up going to trial and then an even smaller proportion of those are appealed. So it's really people making decisions based on a really narrow band of cases and with a blunt instrument where the court has an obligation to end the financial relationship between parties, which may not always be the best outcome for them. Using this collaborative approach, what are the hardest questions divorcing parties need to ask themselves to make sure that it's going to work out okay? While collaborative practice is a great option for most couples, some people are not going to be suitable. If you absolutely hate your spouse, you want to make their life miserable and you really don't care whether they are going to be okay or not, then you're probably not the right person for it. If you want to do everything you possibly can to undermine the other person or try to hide assets, which is very difficult and if you're in a litigation process, it usually doesn't work, you're probably not going to be suitable for it. So what I say is for someone to be suitable for collaborative practice, I ask one important question. Can you contemplate putting yourself in the other person's shoes and imagining things from their perspective? It's not all about you. It's actually about being able to see the other person's perspective. And that's not necessarily to say, look, um, I understand what they want or they should get that because that's what they want. It's actually just being able to to look at a different perspective and understand the concerns and fears that other person might have so that the options that you come up with will meet those needs and really just understanding that their worldview may be very different from yours. The concerns they have may be very different. And what we find when people are able to ask those questions is that they're able to come up with solutions that might for them mean very little, but for the other person mean a great deal. And that's where we really are looking at needs and goals and interests and things that are really not possible in another process. So final question, Jennifer. Do many law practices in Australia practice collaborative practice? Is it the way of the future here? Uh, It certainly is, and it's growing. Um, We have uh, hundreds of collaborative practitioners across Australia, and we now have a national body, the Australian Academy of Collaborative Professionals. Just this week, there was a conference in Sydney hosted by the International Academy of Family Lawyers, which are family lawyers across the world, and it was their Asia-Pacific chapter. And about a third of the program was devoted to collaborative practice and how that can be used in international financial disputes. Uh, So it's certainly, it's a mainstream part of family law and more family lawyers are seeing the benefits of it. The International Academy of Collaborative Professionals, um, I'm a board member of that body. We've been around for over 20 years around the globe and more and more people are being trained. We now have trained professionals in Australia, New Zealand, North America, so including Canada, South America and um, all through Asia as well now. So it's really becoming the dispute resolution process of choice for couples because it gives so many more options that just aren't available to a court where people go into fight. And it really ends up with a lot of money being spent on legal fees, a lot of stress, a lot of delay. And I always say to people, no one's mental health is improved by going to the family court, including the lawyers. That was Divorce Hub family lawyer, Jennifer Hetherington. This episode of Business Essentials Daily is produced by the team at Sound Cartel. Thanks for listening. I'm Nicole Goodman. We'll bring you more B-Daily tomorrow. Follow at BE Daily Podcast across social media 
and head to bedaily.com.au for more from the Business Essentials Daily podcast. Sound Cartel. This episode was brought to you by Mazars. To find out more, visit mazars.com.au. That's M-A-Z-A-R-S dot com dot A-U.